Hi, I'm Jeff Weisenberger, the senior editor of Modern Steel Construction. I want to thank everybody for listening in to our monthly podcast series. My guest this time around is Lou Geschwindner, who is a professor emeritus in architectural engineering at Penn State University, also a senior consultant with Providence Engineering Corporation and a former VP here at AISC, a vice president of engineering and research, and is of course involved with our committee on specifications as the chair of the task committee on member design. Lou, thank you very much for being here. Happy to be here. Excellent. So one of the questions I have was, you know, any, I always ask this of anybody who's uh, working in the buildings uh, realm, way back in the day, was there a specific building or were there certain buildings that you looked at and you said, ah, oh, that's what I want to do. This is what got me into buildings. The thing that, that probably had the most influence on me in the beginning was Mies van der Rohe and the architecture in Chicago. I had initially planned to go to IIT, mm-hmm. and uh, that was because of, of Mies van der Rohe and what I, what I saw there. Uh, turned out I was accepted at IIT, but I didn't go to IIT. I, I ended up going to Rensselaer, mm-hmm. and I was in architecture, and along the way, they do evaluations, and their evaluation and my evaluation, and I realized that I really didn't think like an architect. I thought like an engineer. Mm-hmm. I got my work done and then I was done. I didn't continually revise it all night long, so I didn't pull all-nighters like my classmates, Sure, <laughs> that kind of thing. So you taught at Penn State for, was it just about 40 years or exactly yeah, 40 that. years? Okay, um, what was the time period, if I may ask? Well, I started in 1967. Okay. And then I didn't really stop when I became vice president of engineering. I, I was te- still teaching at Penn State and I did my vice president's position. Okay. From there, gotcha. Uh, so I continued to teach until into uh, well, uh, well into two thousands. Uh, starting back in the sixties up until uh, the early two thousands, you know, we, we like to separate people into generations. That's that seems to be what what happens nowadays because we always want to talk about how to you know get the generations to talk and you know the greatest generation, the baby boomers, the gen Gen Xers, where I'm from, uh, the millennials, and so on. I'm. Did you really? you know, pick up on any distinct differences between the generations. I don't think I saw the distinct differences that I would say, well, this generation does this and this generation does that. Are the students today different than they were in 1967? Absolutely. Uh, But a lot of that is because of what we have available to us today. Sure. Uh, You know, students in 1967, if they wanted to present a drawing, had to actually (laughs) do a drawing. Yep. Right? Um, We talk about about slides. Uh, one of the first things that I did as an undergraduate student working for a faculty member was taking photographs out of magazines and books for him to use in his lectures. Uh, it wasn't too long ago I had a, a student who was doing a project uh, at Penn State uh, on the football stadium and I said oh I can get you some slides so I got her a whole carousel full of slides uh, on what she was working on and she had no idea what they were. What do you do with these little things? Uh, holding these them up to the light. should be in a museum. Light. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you, know, you, see, you see that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and the students today, they can, they can use their tablet or their iPad. They can take notes on it. Mm-hmm. Um, they take pictures of, of the screen. I, I go to Steel Conference and I see all sorts of people taking photographs of the screen as their way of taking notes. It's an uh, easy way to do it. Uh, you know, so, yeah, all of that is, all of that has changed. 
Let's go back then to the 60s. And you are a new professor at Penn State. What can you tell me a little bit about the experience of having to get up in front of a group, not as a student anymore, but now you're the professor, getting up in front of a group of students for the first time? I actually don't remember much about that, but I can, I can tell you that when I was in grade school and high school, there is no way I perceive that I would be somebody in front of a class. Okay, um, yeah. you know I had I had more than my share of, of difficulties uh, in in an academic sense. Um, but what I found as an undergraduate student in architecture mm -hmm. who enjoyed structures was that I could help my classmates to understand the principles that we were studying. Mm -hmm. And that is what got me right. to the point where I wanted to teach because I found that by helping my classmates learn the material, I learned it better. That's true. And so when I first, you know, when I first got to Penn State, it was just sort of an extension of what I had been doing as an undergraduate student with my classmates. It was helping the students to learn. It was just something that seemed to, to be the right thing and flow for me. Very good. So you're a professor emeritus now. What does a professor emeritus do? Anything he wants to. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, whole, the whole idea from a university perspective is to give a rank that allows that faculty member to maintain a connection to the school. Sure. And that is then to benefit the school. There's a connection. There's an emeritus faculty member is someone who has, has made it through uh, in their profession and has some academic standing that mm -hmm. the university wants to maintain a connection with. It allows me to go back. I, if I want to go back and teach a class, I could. If I want to go back and work on a PhD committee or any other graduate committees, you know, I could do those kinds of things. Um, but the reality is I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to do anything or I can do everything. Sure. You know? Okay. Excellent. Okay. Well, you know, since we're still talking about Penn State and, and uh, I got to ask, what do you think of James Franklin as a football coach? Well, I don't know that much about coaching football. <laughs> I, I've always said that I would not want to be asked to take my students out every Saturday and prove what I taught them that week. Oh, right. And that's kind of how I look, look at coaches. Uh, you know, they're called every week to prove that they taught those kids something right. that week. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. What I, what I see is I like, I like his, uh, his perspective on things. I, I think he's got a Penn State attitude in terms of academics and mm -hmm. what's right. So I'm happy with him, but I watch football games on television. I don't go to them. Um, but I think, you know, I think Penn State is, is successful under him right now, and I, I think we should be happy to have him. Very good. So over the years, obviously, uh, and, and still to this day, you're, you've been providing plenty of guidance for people who want to become engineers or learn how to become better engineers. So as a professor, um, do you have advice for anybody who is interested in getting into academia? Or is, you, is your advice, don't? <laughs> my advice is not don't, but my advice is to make sure that the academic position that you look for and that you accept is one that is consistent with your approach to what you want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, 
if you go to a university that is primarily interested in research, then you better be primarily interested in research. Right, right. It does not make any sense for someone whose main interest is teaching undergraduate schools to pursue a position that's going to require them to do research. It can only lead to unhappy people. Sure. And by the same token, if you think you are going to be the world's greatest researcher, don't find some small community college that has only opportunities for you to teach. You've got to try and balance your interests and the interests of the institution. I love teaching. I could not, I, I walk to work every day, mm-hmm. 20 minute walk. And I often would think if I wasn't teaching, what would I want to do? And I could never think of anything I would rather be doing than, than the teaching. I, I just loved doing it. And that's frankly why I continue to do continuing education with AISC, because I really enjoy teaching. I enjoy trying to make complicated things understandable, uh, and I enjoy working with, uh, with students, whether they're, you know, college age, young college age, or academic, or uh, professionals who've been working for years. Sure. If you can help somebody understand something, you've really, really made an, a, a contribution. Excellent. But it's, and it sounds like you are doing something besides teaching now, uh, you're in the consulting world. Um, so to speak, and yeah. you know, you've worked with the specification, and you know, you, you help write the book. Uh, you've also taught a lot of people over the years, um, and again, are continuing to do so. So, um, tell me a little bit about the consulting, and, and what what is it like to put all this knowledge that you've taught to others uh, into practice? Well, the interesting thing about the consulting is that I'm really not doing any work. Um, I'm senior consultant. But I do not have job production responsibility. I work on my things, which are primarily AISC things. Mm-hmm. But I'm there if they have questions. So if one of the members of the company has a question of primarily about steel design, because mm-hmm. that's both what I know best and what I have the best connections for, you know, they'll contact me and we'll talk about the problem and either I'll help them come up with a solution or I'll be able to contact someone who might have a better solution. Uh, I always told my former students back, you know, much younger, but when they they would say, well, when you retire, you can come work for me, I would say, you can't afford me. Not because you couldn't pay me, but because I don't know how to get any answers quickly. I do everything the long way, the way I would teach it. Mm -hmm. And so as a professional, you've got to get to the answer. You've Mm -hmm. got to understand what the problem is, come up with the solution, and get to the answer without deriving every single equation. Uh, But when you need to know where did that equation come from and why am I not getting the answer that's in in the manual, which one of us is wrong, I can help people understand, okay, this is what you're supposed to be doing, this is what you don't understand about it. Mm-hmm. And that, so again, it's a teaching thing. So my role, my role is very much a teaching role sure. for the company. Sure, sure. Um, okay, well, switching a li- away um, from education and work a little bit, I just want to talk about some of your interests, and I do understand that you uh, enjoy reading biographies. And I was wondering if there were any specific people or stories that you've come across that have been particularly inspiring, whether it came to your work, comes to your work or anything else? The one book that 
uh, I read that I wanted to recommend to my grandchildren to read mm -hmm. is Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation. Oh, sure. And the reason is because it helped me to understand my father. And not that he was hard to understand, but as I read that, that book, I could see the kinds of things that my dad and his brothers and, and his sisters uh, and my mother's family, you could see how they approach things. It helped, it helped to understand that whole group of people. Sure. And since I have an interest in, in genealogy and in family, I really want my grandkids to, to read that so that that will help them understand their great-grandfather. Sure. I, I, think, I think everybody ought to read that and understand what the culture of service was with those people, how, how they gave so much uh, for our country. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of genealogy, it sounds like that's another interest of yours. Yeah, it is. It's, it's something that uh, had a long-term interest in. Certainly the computer has, has helped that tremendously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, had an uncle who was very, very much uh, interested in it, but never able to uh, make much progress. Mm -hmm. uh, so he had all of the the living family and the recent history uh, pretty well put together. So we've been able to go back, and now we have uh, the Geschwinder family back uh, to the 1500s oh my. in Steinau, Germany. Okay. It, just out of curiosity, then going back to the 1500s on both sides, any you know surprising or interesting discoveries? Well, there? I, I would say the most interesting thing is that. In Steinau, Germany, mm -hmm. the Geschwinders were masons and built the wall <laughs> around the city. Okay. And in England, my mother's family, the letters, were bricklayers. And I just have found that so interesting that how that has say so. carried carried through. Now I knew how my father became a mason because right. I knew that his father-in-law was a mason and you know so that all that all connected but taking it back multiple generations was just a very interesting thing to me that is pretty amazing um well you know and speaking of uh, genealogy and uh one question i was gonna i, I had was uh, of your three daughters, it is three daughters, correct? Right, three daughters. So I, one of the questions was, did any of them follow you into architectural engineering or anything remotely related? It sounds like one right. of them did. Yeah, my oldest, my oldest daughter is an architectural engineering graduate. She was one of my students. Okay. And her husband was one of the students in that same class. So, um, and that Dave, David's got uh, Providence Engineering. Okay. With offices all across the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so they have, mm -hmm. uh, as far as grandkids, we're not quite sure yet. Uh, have at least, at least the <laughs> youngest of the nine grandkids uh, looks like she might become uh, an engineer of some kind. Got a couple of other ones that, that are a few years older than her that may, but we're not, we're not really sure yet sure. What, what they're going to go. Which is interesting to think that the youngest one, who is in sixth grade, is... Uh, very much looks like an engineer uh, at, <laughs> okay. this, at this stage, whereas the ones that are juniors in high school, we're not sure about yet. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I'm sorry, how many grandkids? Uh, we have nine grandkids. Nine grandkids. What's, just, what's the age range? The youngest one is in sixth grade, and the oldest one has been a graduate of Penn State for a year and a half. Oh, okay. So Excellent. All right. 
What do your grandkids think of your mustache? Well, they haven't known me. In fact, none of my none of my kids or my grandkids have known me without the mustache. Sure. Um, I think they I think they like it to to the extent that they would think anything about it. I I have a picture uh, one Thanksgiving. When they were much younger, they all came with uh, fake mustaches and, and put on <laughs> fake mustaches. So we have a photograph of all of us sitting on the couch. I want to see this picture. With, yeah, I'll have to look for that with uh, with fake mustaches. Um, but you know, it it's one of those things that it's just there. I never thought too much about it, but my one grandfather had a mustache, a very small one, but he had a mustache and. I'm not sure I ever saw it. You know, it was just always there. Right. So that was him. So there was, it was no just part of him. Yeah, there was no thinking about it. Well, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I believe I've heard the origin story, and it has something to do with when your first daughter was yeah. born. But I, so a question was, you know, it, did it ever get to a point where you said, "My gosh, I I've had it so long, I can't get rid of it anymore. I'd be letting people down. It's become well, a part I don't know of about, me now." I don't know about letting people down, but <laughs> but I I would not have any interest in getting rid of it never have i don't i don't know why my brother also has a handlebar mustache he's five years younger than me and i started and the first time i saw him when i went back home to new jersey he had one also which really really shocked both of us um he has shaved his a couple times shaved it off Mm -hmm. grew it back uh but i have never never thought about doing that now I do recognize that it makes me stand out, mm-hmm. and that, I suppose, is part of why you do it. Sure. You know, I, I when I was teaching, I wore wild ties. Right, uh, right. I've heard about I, the wild you know, ties. I never, I never went to class without a wild tie on. Wore a different tie every ac- every day of the academic year. Um, so sort of standing out just seemed to be the the way to sort of break the ice with the students and you know sure how can how can you be too uh standoffish with a guy who's wearing wild ties and a, and a handlebar mustache you know he's got to be put some at ease a little bit to. right yeah. Yeah. yeah well that's that's excellent oh uh, i just one more question you you we had uh, talked a little bit beforehand about uh model trains mm-hmm. so tell me a little bit about model trains is this a lifelong obsession or something well, a little bit more recent it, it's sort of uh more recent in the to the extent that I've been doing it. I I had trains when I was a kid, but I never I never did much about it. Um, but about twenty years ago, uh, some things changed. Some opportunities came about to to get a few new pieces, and I just sort of just started accumulating trains. And they're they're O gauge, they're Lionel type trains, sure. and you know have a table in the basement, set it up. And I always forget, I know the gauges are different sizes, but which, what, like, about what size is an O? O gauge is the three-track one. Okay. A three-rail one, rather, which is, what, a couple inches apart. Okay. But I also have a garden railroad, which is one outside, which is uh, a little Fun. bit bigger. And so that runs around the garden. Um, but it's just, it's just something to play with. It's of just course. kind of fun stuff. We all need that, though. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Lou, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. Happy to be here. Thanks Thanks a lot.